The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, We're going to be talking this morning about end-time Antichrist. Now, we're continuing our study here in 1 John this morning, and I want you to keep in mind that this is a circular letter, not written to one specific church, but to many churches um, that John Lazarus is writing to. He's writing to them about the issue of fellowship. He's not trying to get these people saved. These people are Christians. The Gospel was written that people would come to faith This epistle is written for people who believe to tell them how to have fellowship, and that's important this morning. We're going to be talking a little bit about this area of fellowship. Now, this morning we're going to look at verses 18 and 19. And many interpreters see 18, verse 18 is beginning a new section. And this passage that we're going to look at has two sections. First of all, verse 18 and 19, in which the author speaks of the coming Antichrist and identifies them as the secessionists. And then secondly, from verse 20 to 27, where he warns his readers about the secessionists and about their attempt to deceive them, so he's warning them, he's preparing them ahead of time. Verse 18 says, Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Now the word children here is from the Greek word paideia, And paideia is a word that means little child. Someone still under parental instruction is, I think, the idea here. And paideia refers to a child who needs to be trained, they need to be instructed. John may be implying their vulnerability here and the need to be on guard against these unprincipled men who are trying to deceive them. Paideia is used in verse 13 where he says, I have written to you children because you know the Father. So... We know then that he's talking to those who are believers, those who know the Father. That's who these children are. And he says to these children, it's the last hour. Now, we spent our whole study on this last time dealing with the last hour. Um, The last hour closes a succession of hours. It's the end of the last day, which was the end of the last days. Does that all make sense? (laughs) It seems so basic, and yet... So many people miss it. It is the last days of what? The world? No, it was the last days of the Old Covenant. The last days of national Israel. The last days ran from Pentecost to AD 70, to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now this period of time is called the transition period. And let me just tell you, if you're going to correctly understand the New Testament, you have to understand the transition period. The transition period began on Pentecost in AD 30, and it ended at the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. And during this transition period, the church was growing from infancy to maturity. A spiritual house was being built for God to dwell in, and in AD 70, God moved in the house. This was a time of change. It was a time of growth. It was a time of transformation, moving from the old to the new The Old Covenant, the writer of Hebrews says, was fading away. The New Covenant was being consummated. And at the end of the transition period, the judgment, the resurrection, 
and the second coming all took place. The last hour ended in AD 70. And missing these important time statements caused people to misapply by nearly 2,000 years many verses in the Bible. The last hour spoken of by John was the last hour of the Jewish Old Covenant age. It became obsolete, it passed away, and it's gone. Now, as we saw in our last study, almost all scholars see John as calling the entire period between Yeshua's ascension and what they see as a yet future return of Christ, the last hour. So these people see this last hour as lasting a couple thousand years. That's a long hour. You know, it's amazing how you know, words don't mean, have any meaning anymore because we just, you know, we stretch this last hour to last thousands of years. It makes no sense. Um, the last time I read you a bunch of quotes about the last time, just to show you how people deal with this last hour. Today I want to give you one more quote, just to show you the extremes that people will go through to get around or ignore the time statements. All right? In his commentary on the Epistle of John, Zane Hodges writes this on the last hour, explaining away the last hour by using 2 Peter 3.8, you know, their favorite verse, with the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is that a day. You've heard that, you know, from anybody you try to talk to about this. Well, here's what Zane says. Peter's statement takes on a fresh appearance in light of contemporary physics. Okay, well, my first, as soon as I read that, I thought, okay, then what did Peter's statement mean to the people he was speaking to? Did it not have meaning to them because they didn't know anything about contemporary physics, our contemporary physics, all right? He says, the transformation of modern physics through Einstein's theory of special relativity, supplemented later by general relativity, and let me tell you, you know, you look into the special relativity and you're like, theory is a good word, okay? Because it's made up stuff, all right? I think this would, you know, and there's no way to prove any of this, all right? He says, has produced a new perspective on time. Oh, so, so this is how we're missing it, okay? Now we're getting clear on what time is, all right? Time, we now understand, is a fourth dimension, which, along with the three dimensions of space, constitutes our space-time universe. Under special relativity, we have learned that the speed at which time passes is relative to the speed at which an object moves through space. The faster the movement through space, the slower the passage of time, and vice versa. But since nothing can pass through space-time faster than the speed of light, 670 million miles per hour, a photon, or particle, of light experiences no time, i.e., it does not age. Thus, for a photon of light, one day and 1,000 years are both timeless and thus identical to the photon. Well, the only problem here is we're not photons, okay? We're people-tons, all right? We're people. And what does it have? You know, was God writing the Word of God to photons so they could understand it? No. He is writing the Word of God to people who are bound by time and space. He goes on to say, inasmuch as God is light, certainly at the spiritual level, and he cites 1.5, it is not a stretch to say that his experience of time is like that of physical light. His, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, his. There is no difference to God between one day 
and a thousand years, as Peter states. Moreover, even we would find the passage of time a thousand years to be very... Now watch. Moreover, even we would find the passage of a thousand years to be very brief if we could sufficiently accelerate our motion through space. But can you? No. So what does this mean to us? Do you see the gymnastics, the crazy stuff that they go through to try to experience, explain us away? As no doubt angels can. So he goes, angels can do this so they understand it. Thus, critics of the Bible who find fault with the statement, I am coming quickly, are arguing from the now outdated notion of time. Oh, you see, so when the Lord said, I'm coming quickly, He's talking physics. He's talking photon stuff. Okay, if you people could travel through time at an accelerated rate, then time wouldn't matter to you. <laughs> arguing from the now outdated notion that time passes at a fixed rate of speed in our universe, we now know this assumption is false. The speed of time is relative to the observer and depends on the speed of his motion through space. 2 Peter 3.8 amazingly foreshadows the insights of modern physics. And his subsequent remark that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, alright, so he's, he's focusing here, 2 Peter foreshadows these insights, alright? He goes on to say, we can now be seen to imply relativity in one's estimate of time. For slow-moving earth people, time seems to go slowly. I got a headache reading that. Listen, Zane Hodges was a personal friend of mine. He died back in 08. Him and I had some great conversations. But I read this, I think, this is the craziest explanation I have ever heard. Okay? What does contemporary physics have to do with anything? This was written 2,000 years ago to people at that time. And this still, all this stuff means nothing anyway. If, even if any of this is true, it doesn't mean anything because we're not photons. We're not moving at that. We're people. And God wrote the Word of God to humans. And that's when people pull up that verse in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 3.8. I'm like, okay, to God, a day is as a thousand years. God is beyond time. We are not beyond time. I'm limited. I'm bound by time. Soon to me has a meaning. Long to me has a meaning. And he's writing to real people. And we have to get people to realize that. It's like we check our brains at the door with Christianity nowadays and say, you know, just tell me anything. And it, I'll just nod and say, yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah. All right, so children, it's the last hour. We're done with the last hour now. Okay, let's move on. All right. As you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Now notice, notice that Lazarus directly addresses his readers with the emphatic pronoun, you. You have heard. The people he's writing to, you have heard this. Okay? Antichrist. Now, when we hear the word antichrist, that's a term that's become very familiar to Christians, right? I mean, they're always trying to figure out who it is. You know? It was Obama recently, right? And I don't know who it is nowadays, but, you know, it changes a lot. I'm sure people think it's Trump now or something, you know? All right? It's an ominous word, and it carries with it this apocalyptic vision, you know, of this end-time ruler. In this verse, it's used both in a singular and a plural, and neither term has the definite article with it. 
So Moulton and Milligan cite examples to show that the Greek prefix ante, added to some person's name or title, can mean either the claim to be that person. All right, so when you say someone is antichrist, it either means that he's claiming to be Christ, okay, or he's in opposition or substitution for that person. So he's either against it or he's saying, I am it. All right? Antichrists are those who oppose Yeshua and his teaching. John is the only New Testament writer to use this word. And it only. Oh, slide messed up. All right, he's the only one to use it. All right? Man, I jumped several slides. Only one to use this term. So you're wondering, okay, how? How'd they know about it? Well, let's look at some of the uses that John, because John uses this five different times, two in that one verse, and then he uses it in verse 22. He says, who is a liar? It is he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. This is, and here the definite article is there, this is the Antichrist, all right, who denies the Father and the Son. So clearly, Antichrist is the one who is openly, overtly denying that Yeshua is the Christ. He's not the Messiah. They're, they're speaking lies concerning Christ. They deny He's the Christ. It's a denial of His nature. It's a denial of His identity and His work. Then he uses it in 4.3. He says, Every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, the word confess here, we've already looked at this in 1 John, homologeo, and it means to say the same thing, all right? To agree with another, say the same thing. So in other words, homologeo, you're confessing Yeshua, you're agreeing with what God says about Yeshua, you're saying, I agree with that. I agree with what God says, which is that He's equal to the Father, He's equal to God the Father in every way. John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. There's no distinction between them. All right. Now watch what he says in John 14.9. Yeshua said to him, Have I been so long with you, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now he's not saying he is the Father. He's the Son. He's a different person. He's the second person of the triune God. But he's saying that we are identical. You know, we are one. So anyone who denies that they are the same, denies that they are the one God, possesses, he says, the spirit of the Antichrist. Then he uses it in 2 John 1.7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and an Antichrist. Now anyone who has an aberrant view as to the nature of Christ, uh, maybe it's his deity, maybe it's humanity. Anyone who attacks Christ, any person who is against Christ, against his deity, his humanity, his nature, his work, they're antichrist. They possess that spirit of antichrist. That is what he is telling us. Now, it's in this category that the author of 1 John sees the opponents against which he's writing. All right? This is clear in 2 John 7 here, where he, the author explicitly labels the opponents as the deceivers and the antichrist. He's warning them about these deceivers, and he's calling these deceivers antichrist. And in 1 John 2, 6, he says, these things I have written to you about those who are trying to deceive you. He's warning them about these false teachers, which he calls 
Antichrist. Now, he says to them, as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Now, Bob Utley writes here on is coming. He says, this is a present middle deponent indicative. In Kone Greek, some forms of the Greek verb fell out of use, and other forms took over their function. Deponent verbs are middle or passive voice in form, but are translated as active voice in meaning. So here the present is used to express the certainty of a future event. These antichrists are coming. It's certain. Now the antichrist singular is coming, and many false teachers or false messiahs similar to him have already appeared. He says, as you heard, antichrist is coming. So now there's a lot of antichrists. Okay? Now, the general concept of a powerful end-time figure opposed to God is found in Jewish apocalyptic writings. And many see Antichrist here, uh, they connect this figure with Daniel 7, all right, which talks about the horn. Or they're connected with Revelation 13, which talks about the beast. And listen, both of these figures could be said to be anti-Christ. In other words, they're against Christ. All right? They also throw in the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically say that any of these are antichrist. Any of these figures. All right? But all of these figures were antichrist. You see what I'm saying? They're not getting that title, antichrist, but they were against Christ. They were antichrist. They're not said to be antichrist, but they are. Now, it's also possible that the author merely has in mind the secessionists as opposing Christ. These people in their teaching, they're opposing Christ. Lazarus doesn't refer to the spirit of Antichrist in 4.3 as the controlling force behind the cessationist opponents. All right, So we're not really sure. Is that what he's talking about? Is he talking about a specific figure? Is he talking about just these people who are teaching against Christ? Smalley thinks that the lack of Greek article here with the term in 1 John 2.18 indicates that it, uh, it had at this time come to become personalized, but had passed out of the current use as a proper name. So he thinks he's using it as a proper name. That's why there's no articles. You don't use articles with a proper name, right? You're not the Stan, you're Stan. Okay, so we don't use articles with a proper name. So he's arguing that. Now against this, however, is the fact that the two later uses have the definite article. All right, so sometimes the definite article is there, sometimes it's not there. But this indicates that the teaching about the coming of the Antichrist was well known to his readers. He said, you have heard, his readers, that Antichrist is coming. How did they hear this? How did they know there was coming an Antichrist if, in fact, the word doesn't even appear anywhere except in John's epistles. So how did they hear it? This is the first New Testament mention of the term Antichrist. And like I said, people will take this term and place it on everything. Anything that's, you know, the beast, and Revelation, Daniel, whatever, they put Antichrist there. It's not there, and the writers could have used the same term if they wanted to, so I don't think he's trying to tell us this is some giant specific end-time you know, being who's going to take over the world or whatever. This is the first use of it in John. But John says, you already know about him. You've already heard. So I would guess this is probably a reference to the Lord's teaching in Matthew 24. And we know Matthew 24 is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
the second coming. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christ, false Christ, that's the Antichrist, and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so that to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So Yeshua had cautioned his disciples against false Christ and false prophets before. But he gives a more specific caution against them about the time of the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. And we learn from Josephus, who was a contemporary writer, that many such impostors did arise about that time and they promised deliverance from God, being persuaded by the tyrants or governors to prevent the people and the soldiers from deserting to the Romans. And the worse the Jewish situation, the more open they were to listen to these deceptions. You can understand that. The worse your situation, that's like people today. You look at some of these faith healers and people are flocking to these faith healers. Why? Because desperate people will do anything to get better. They're sick. So, you know, hey, maybe there's some chance this guy's right. Okay? And if you got a sinus headache or low back pain, they can probably help you. Okay? But if you got some serious illness, organic illness, they're not going to do anything for you. All right? But that's the idea here. These people were, they were in a time of upheaval and commotion. And so these false Christs were coming along and saying, hey, I got deliverance, follow me. And so they were more ready to follow these. Hey, Gesippus, too, um, according to Eusebius, mentions the coming of false Christs and false prophets around the same time. So many of the current writers were saying that there's a lot of false Christs around this time. And these false Christs and false prophets were so convincing that he said if it was possible, they would deceive the very elect. Docetus was reputed to work wonders according to Origen. And Bar Chobibus, too, who Jerome said pretended to vomit flames. So they're talking about all these guys who came up with these, they were doing this crazy stuff. Uh, Matthew 24, 25 says, See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, Look, He's in the inner room. Don't believe it. See, Christ had warned them about the coming of these false Christs and false prophets. And several of these false Christs led their followers into the desert. Josephus, in his Antiquities, writes this. Many impostors and cheats persuaded the people to follow them into the desert where they promised to show manifest wonders and signs done by the providence of God. And many being persuaded suffer the punishment of their folly for Felix brought them back and chastised them. Now, again, in his history of the Jewish war, speaking of the same people, he says, Josephus says, these impostors, under a pretense of divine inspiration, affecting innovations and changes, persuaded the multitude to grow mad and led them forth into the desert as if God would there show them the signs of liberty. Against these, Felix, for it seemed to be the foundation of a revolt, sent horses and foot soldiers, and slew a great number of them. Now, Josephus mentions another imposter who promised salvation to the people and a cessation of all evils if they would follow him into the desert. But Festus sent horses and foot soldiers against him and destroyed the deceiver himself and those who followed him. So several of these imposters led their followers into secret chambers or places of security. Josephus mentions a false prophet who declared to be declared to the people in the city that God commanded them 
to go up into the temple. And there they would receive a sign of deliverance. A multitude of men, women, and children went up accordingly, but instead of deliverance, the place was set on fire by the Romans. So these false prophets are doing the exact opposite of what Christ. Christ says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out of there. The false prophets say, when you see this army, go into Jerusalem. And 6,000 perished miserably in the flames or throwing themselves down to escape them. So these people are dying because of these false prophets. Now I'm sure that you can understand that during this time of such distress, people are just open to hear and to follow anyone who promised them deliverance from their miseries. So these false Christs are getting quite a following. He says, so now many antichrists have come, therefore we know it's the last hour. Now have come here is a perfect active indicative the Antichrist spirit was already present and active in the secessionists. Now, some commentators understand this to refer to the Roman Empire of John's day. They see them as the Antichrist. While others say it's some yet future world empire in the last day. But I want you to notice here that the arrival of this last hour is signaled by what? How do they know it's the last hour? Because there's many Antichrists. He says, therefore, because there's a lot of Antichrist, you know it's the last hour. So what does that tell us? There couldn't be Antichrist until there was Christ. All right, so Christ had come, and right after Christ's coming, now we got all these Antichrists. And so he says, he's trying to tell the people, listen, this is how you know it's the last hour. We never had all these Antichrists before. We got them now because it's the last hour. And in the first century after Christ, there arose many, many antichrists, signifying what John's trying to say, it's the last hour. Now, as I said, the last hour ended in AD 70. So did antichrist end? Are there antichrists today? Yeah. There's been antichrists ever since. Because ever since Christ, there's been antichrists. But it was the onslaught of them in the beginning that signaled it's the last hour. That's why you see these. We still have them. Ever since that time, John saw his adversaries as Antichrist. These secessionists, that's what he's calling them. Well, later, Tertullian, a century later, would see his adversaries as Antichrist. And many centuries later, the Reformers would see their enemy. Who was the Reformers' enemy? The Pope. They saw the Pope as the Antichrist. Okay? And it still goes on and on. Today, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Christian Science, Unity, they all began in the 19th century. They're all anti-Christ. Charles Manson, in his bizarre demonic attempt, identified himself as Christ. He said he was the Christ. He had the spirit of Antichrist. Anyone who attacks the deity or the humanity, or the work of Yeshua is anti-Christ. And people, many, many people do this today. Okay? And the problem is, most Christians don't know enough Christology to even deal with this. They don't know. They hear it and they're like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Because they don't know the Bible well enough, they don't know the Christology to know that that's anti-Christ. So John is identifying these people that he's battling. 
And often such identifications of Antichrist with contemporary adversaries were made with the supposition they think, well, see, the biblical writer had kind of seen into the future and they're predicting that these Antichrists are going to come. But they're missing the fact that they were already there, John said, in the first century. They're here now. And the reason we know it's the last hour is because they're here. It doesn't mean that, go, that most people assume, well, look in our day, we got a lot of Antichrist, so it's the last hour. No, that's not, it's a long, long hour, if it's still the last hour, all right? So John is telling his readers that Antichrist that they were seeing were an indication that they're in the last hour. And as I said, the last hour ended in AD 70, but there will always be Antichrist. There will always be those who oppose Christ. Some ignorantly, some maliciously. Now, referring to the Antichrist that he mentions in verse 18, the writer says this about them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is one of those verses that people love to lift out of its context and use it for all kinds of things. All right? This verse has been lifted out of its context and distorted by so many people. Commenting on this verse, Stephen J. Cole writes this, Beware of anyone who breaks from the true church to form a new group. With new theology, they deviate from orthodox Christian doctrine on major issues. They claim that they have the truth and that others do not, or that they now see things that others do not see. You know, when I read that quote by Cole, what struck me here is, hey, that's Berean Bible Church. That's what he's talking about. That's Berean Bible Church. Look at, beware of anyone who breaks from the true church. Now, of course, the true church. What is that? What is the true church? It's whatever one you're going to probably, right? That's the true church, all right? They break from the true church to form a new group with new theology. We did that. We left Faith Bible Church and because we, we started, we had new theology. We said, hey, the second coming is not future, it's past. All right? That was new theology. It's not new to the Bible, but it was new to them. They deviate from orthodox Christian doctrine. See, they said, you guys are leaving orthodoxy. Well, in a, in a matter of fact, we were, I guess, because everyone was saying the Lord's coming in the future. And we said, no, nah, we don't think so, because the Bible says it came in the past. All right? So you read quotes like that, and you think, well, I guess that applies to us. So, you know, <laughs> what are we? Cole goes on to say, the test of orthodoxy is submission, to, is submission and adherence to the apostolic teaching contained in the New Testament. If someone comes up with some new truth that no one else has discovered since the days of the apostles, beware. And we were accused of this. We got accused of being proud because we saw something nobody else saw. Other people saw it. It just always got put down and shut down. You know, I mean, we're just saying, here's what the Bible says. We didn't have anything new. We were just taking the time statement seriously for once. We started to apply audience relevance. Let's not just talk about this principle. Let's actually apply it. And then we got in trouble. We were applying it to the time statement. Say, I think soon means soon. What do you think? Using this verse, many have come up with faulty theology. They often see the scene like this. Here's how they would interpret it. There's some controversy among people at a church. And someone responds by saying, I'm so sick of all this. This church and all churches are just a bunch of hypocrites. I don't need any of this. I can follow God my own way. And so they leave. 
Not just the church. They leave any kind of church. Then they will say stuff like this. We can fairly say that this person does not appear to be a Christian. And their appearance demonstrates that they never really were a Christian. That is such a distortion of what this verse is talking about. They went out from us. In other words, someone left our church. They went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, they're not Christians. If they'd have been Christians, they'd have stayed right here with us. Or they're not going to any church so they can't be Christians. Is that part of the gospel somewhere? Have I missed something about the gospel, about church attendance? You know, believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and faithfully attend church and you shall be saved. It's amazing how many people add things to the gospel. Not maybe maliciously, but, you know, subtly, well, yeah, you've got to do that if you're going to be a Christian. Because we can't count people as Christians if they're not going to church. I know a lot of Christians don't go to church. And you know what? I don't have to blame them because the church today is so messed up that there's no point. Any of you read any of the stuff that that lead singer from Skillet has been putting out? It is amazing. I can't even remember his name. But I read a couple articles by him. He's basically saying the church is worshiping musicians, worshiping these people, and they've gotten so far away from truth, they're all into emotion. It's so true. He's coming down. He goes, we've got to be guided by the Word of God, not by our emotions. Amen. I'm, he's going to be run out of a job quick. You know, you can't be saying stuff like that, you know, you know disrupting the culture that you know, he's so much a part of. But that's what people say. Well, they left the church. They're not a Christian anymore. And I would, my question would be, left what church? The Lutheran church? The Presbyterian church? The Baptist church? The Nazarene church? What church did they leave? To say that if you don't go to church, you're not a Christian is a gross distortion of this verse. This verse is not talking about that at all. They went out from us, but they were not of us. See, most see this as the opponents, the Antichrist, going out from the congregation or the Christian community that John is writing to. But if this was the case, that would be good news. Hey, you guys, the Antichrist have left you. They'd be like, yay, they're gone. We don't need that false teaching here, do we? That's good. That's not what he's saying. Who is the us in this verse? This us, which is repeated four times in this verse, is contrasted to the you in the preceding and the following verse. He says in verse 18, as you have heard, the, the readers, and we know, we, you, the readers, and Paul, and then he says they went out from us, and then he goes back, but you have an anointing, and you have knowledge. What we have here is a we, you, us contrast, and it completely distorts this text to treat the us of verse 19 as though it meant simply us Christians. If he was referring to the Antichrist going out from the churches, he would have said they went out from you. The Antichrist had not left the churches or the church to whom Lazarus writes. If they had done that, like I said, that would not be a problem. That would be good. He's not writing because they left the churches. He's writing that they were going to these churches and teaching them false doctrine. He's warning them about that. Lazarus is concerned about his ex the reader's exposure to these teachers. So who's the us here? I see this as a reference to the apostolic circle or the church at Jerusalem. 
All right, Lazarus is writing from Jerusalem. And he's saying, they went out from us. Now, I know Lazarus is not an apostle. But he is part of that Jerusalem church, and I think he would have been considered part of the apostolic circle. This would mean that these false teachers had gone out from among the apostles, not that they were apostles themselves, but they were claiming their message was what the apostles endorsed. We came from Jerusalem church. People, that had a ton of authority back then. Okay? That had a lot of meaning. All right, that's like a Catholic saying, oh, I come from Rome. You know, they're like, whoa, we better listen to you then. No, they're claiming this endorsement. Having come from the church and from among the apostles, these antichrists, they would have had a lot of clout, people. And that's what John's worried about. All right, they went out from us, he says, and they're going to come to you. We come from Jerusalem church. Don't listen to them because they're not of us. If they had been of us, they would still be with us. They'd still be in fellowship. And I think what we see here is similar to Paul's warning the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Remember Acts 20? Paul calls for the Ephesian elders. He gets them all over there because he he wants to give them a farewell. He wants to warn them. And he tells the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to care for the church of God which he has obtained with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he's warning the elders that these false teachers are going to rise from where? From among the elders, he's saying. All right? They're going to come from the elders, from the pastors. That's where they're going to come from. That gives them authority. Listen, I'm an elder in this church, and they're teaching false doctrine. They're going to rise from you. These men went out from them, but they were not of them. What John is saying in our text sounds very similar to the situation we see in Acts 15. Acts 15, 1 and 2 says, But some of the men came down from Judea. Okay, keep that in mind. They're coming from the mother church, all right, from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Alright? This is salvation plus works. But they're coming from Judea, the mother church, and that gives them authority. They're saying, well, maybe we've got to listen to these guys. He says, and after, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas said, wait a minute, guys. That's not right. They were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. Alright, let's, let's go back to mother church and let's talk about this. Now, the context of this chapter is that the church at Antioch was primarily Gentile. The church at Jerusalem is Jewish. And they had come together to debate the doctrine of soteriology. There's nothing more important you can debate, all right? How is a person saved? Because there were men from Jerusalem that were teaching you had to trust Yeshua, but you also had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. These are false teachers. And they seemingly had authority because they were coming from the Jerusalem church. Now drop down to verse 24 of that chapter. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. You see what he's saying? They didn't come from us. 
Okay? Now here, they've gone out from us. These words, gone out from us, are exactly the same Greek expression as we see in our text. They went out from us. They came out from the Jerusalem church, he says, but they were not of us. They, didn't have, they weren't in fellowship with us. They're not teaching our doctrine. Now, just to show you the status that those from Jerusalem would have had. I mean, you know, this church is scattering from Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem. But for ten years, it was nothing but Jewish. In Jerusalem. Then God scattered them through persecution, so they started carrying the word. But when someone came from Jerusalem, that was important. That was Mother Church. And to show you the status of those in Jerusalem, look at uh, Galatians here, chapter 2, 11. He says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Peter's the first pope, isn't he? I mean, he's got a lot of courage here, you know, confronting the first pope, so to speak. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. Now here's what's going on. In Antioch's fully integrated congregation of Christian Jews and Gentiles, Peter had regularly followed the custom of eating with the Gentile Christians. How come he had freedom to do that? Remember God showed Peter something in a dream, let a sheet down, rise, kill, and eat. You know, what God has called clean, don't you call unclean. So he's, hey, I can go eat with the Gentiles. That's pretty cool. And undoubtedly, his presence at their table fellowship would have been taken as an official stamp of approval on the union and equality of Jews and Gentiles in the church. Hey, Peter's with us. You can imagine that the Gentile believers in that church were especially encouraged. Hey, Peter's having lunch with us. That's really cool. I mean, this is one of the apostles, all right? Now, our text in Galatians says he was eating with the Gentiles. The imperfect tense of the Greek here indicates that Peter's eating with the Gentiles was continuous. He's just constantly having food with us. That is, it's habitual, it's regular, it's over a period of time. Then something happened that changed Peter's eating habits. Our text says, before certain men came from James. Who were these men? What did they do that had this big influence on Peter? Well, we don't know. Everybody wants to speculate that Judaizers and that they put a bunch of pressure on Peter. All we know from the text is it came from James. Where's James? James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Okay? So they're coming from James, and they were of the party of the circumcision. All that really tells us is they're Jewish Christians that came from Jerusalem. So Peter is in Antioch. Listen, he's enjoying himself. He's eating lobster, crab legs, ham sandwiches. He is having the time of his life. Okay? I mean, anybody, you know, you've got a bacon, okay? He's eating bacon. And then these Jewish believers come from James. They show up. And because of fear of these men, he quits eating bacon. That's a strong force that can drive a man to do that, people. <laughs> he withdraws from the Gentiles and he goes back to only eating kosher food with the Gentiles. See, James is a leader in the Jerusalem church. He's a, a godly man who was meticulous in his following after righteousness. And because he ministered among the Jews, he followed after righteousness, meaning 
he gave no offense to the Jews. Listen, you're in Jerusalem. You've got to be careful how you live because you're trying to win Jews. You don't want to offend Jews. When you're in the Gentile territory, it's a whole different ballgame. All right? The Jews were free from these dietary laws because God had set them free, but they didn't want to be a stumbling block to their brothers. That in turn meant that James is a close adherent to the customs of the Jews. If he had not been a minister of the Jews, he probably wouldn't have been so meticulous with these customs. If he'd have been down there, he'd have probably eaten ham too. So these men from James would no doubt have followed these Jewish dietary laws. So probably this party from James, they ate at first by themselves. They get down there, well, I can't eat that stuff, I'm eating by myself. While the rest of them, both Jews and Gentiles, they're all eating together. Then, because Peter feared these Jewish guests, he said, wow, these guys are from James. He joined them, and eventually all the other Jewish Christians except Paul, they all followed. Oh, okay, we, we can't eat with the Gentiles anymore. How do you think that meant the gen, made the Gentiles feel? Well, I guess we're second-class citizens. I guess we're not really in. I guess what's, what's happening here? They're all leaving us. And Paul said, this is hypocrisy. That's why Paul confronted him. You stinking hypocrite, Peter. We're all the body of Christ. You don't have to do that. So finally, it ends up there's two different meals at mealtime. You've got the Gentile group over here. You've got the Jewish party over here. One thing is made explicit in verse 12. Fearing the circumcision party. Peter feared this group. Why? We don't exactly know. We can speculate. All right, what would they tell James when they got back? Hey, James, Peter's down there eating ham sandwiches and bacon and stuff. When he's, is he going to ruin his reputation back in the office, you know, back up in Jerusalem? All these thoughts may have run through Peter's mind, and slowly he pushed away his plate from in front of him. He lost his smile, he lost his joy, he lost his liberty, and he turns back on his new friends. Can't eat with you guys anymore. Peter feared these men from Jerusalem, so he compromised his convictions even though he knew that was wrong. God himself had shown Peter, this is okay. I've cleansed it. And I just I say all that to help you understand the Jerusalem church had clout. If you came from there, okay, we want to hear what you had to say. I mean, they're adding to salvation, some of these guys, and they had to have a church council to straighten it out. Lazarus says, they were not of us. So it seems like these Antichrists had once been in the Jerusalem church, which gave them a prestigious point of origin, but their departure from the apostolic fellowship was an indication that they didn't really belong there in the first place. They didn't really belong there. So it seems like there was some kind of schism between this apostolic circle and the Antichrist, and this schism was over the doctrine of Christ. All right? They're not arguing about the color of carpet in the church. They're arguing about something that's important. It is probably not a coincidence that the same verb used here to describe the departure of the Antichrist, ex erichomai, was used in John 13.30, of the departure of Judas Iscariot from the upper room. And I think the implication here is clear. Just as Judas betrayed Yeshua, so the secessionists have betrayed their fellow members of the community and they've gone out into darkness. It says when Peter left the upper room, he went out and it was night. He's going into the darkness. So are these people. They're going into the darkness. They're leaving the truth of this apostolic circle and they're going out. It says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued. All right? This is a second-class conditional sentence which is called contrary to fact. It should be translated, if they had belonged to us, 
which they did not, they would have stayed with us, which they did not. Now, many take this statement by John to mean that these opponents were never really Christians. John doesn't really indicate here whether they were or not. They may have been, they might not have been. But the word continued here is the characteristic Johannian verb, meno, which expresses the ongoing personal relationship between genuine members of the Christian community. This is John's theme here, fellowship. They would have continued to fellowship with us is what he is saying. See, we can fellowship over truth, but they're out in the darkness. We can't have fellowship anymore. They would have remained with us if they would have been in that fellowship. John MacArthur writes this, If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. That is the principle. Now, what that's saying is that salvation is proven by perseverance. Anybody got a problem with that? What? Okay, we're not talking about salvation, but John does a lot, okay? And let me just clarify this. You know, people think I pick on John MacArthur a lot. Um, I love John MacArthur. I mean, I got my style from him. I studied from him for years and years and years, and that's where I got my verse-by-verse verse, you know, commitment to the Word of God. But I just think you know, he's really off in this area of lordship, and he makes it so severe that he makes Christians doubt whether they're Christians. And I think that's a terrible thing. That's doing damage to the church. Okay, When you make Christians think, well, okay, if salvation is proven by perseverance, I don't really know I'm saved. Because it's not, I haven't reached the end yet, okay? So if I could drop out any time, that, that's kind of damaging to assurance. He says, you have heard that word. You remember one of the great tenets of the Reformed theology is perseverance of the saints. True Christians stay true to the faith. So he doesn't believe in apostasy. He doesn't believe in a Christian can leave. So that's what he's saying here. He goes on to say, how do you tell when somebody really belongs to God? How do you tell when somebody really belongs to Christ? if they continue. And Jonathan Edwards, along that same line, said, the sure proof of election is that one perseveres until the end. Others have put it, continuance is the test of reality. And when you do that, you know what John and Jonathan are both saying here is that you can't really be sure you're a Christian until you die in faith, until you reach the finish line. Right? If you don't continue... You're not saved. Now listen carefully, believer. This is, this is so important. Um, we are saved by the act of faith, not by the continuity of faith. Alright? The Lord promises over and over through the Gospel, if you believe, someday you'll be saved. Is that what He promises? No. If you believe, you'll be saved. When you put your faith in Christ, which you can't do unless God has called you to do that, unless He opens your eyes and gives you insight, you can't do that, then you're saved. If you're saved by the continuity of faith, then you never really know that you have everlasting life because you're always wondering, oh, I could quit. And certainly, you never have assurance. And without assurance, it's really hard to live the Christian life. Now, MacArthur mentioned the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. This is one of the five points of Calvinism. 
the acronym TULIP here, I think you're all familiar with that, gives us the five points of Calvinism. The T stands for what? Total depravity. Okay? Doesn't mean man's as bad as, everyone's as bad as they can be. It means everyone is depraved. They're separated from God. All right? What's the U stand for? Unconditional election. What does that mean? That means God chooses you because you're really nice. No, unconditional means there's no conditions for your election. God chose you because He chose to chose you. Okay? What's the L stand for? Limited atonement. All right? I is irresistible grace. In other words, when God calls you, you come. You don't resist His grace. And you don't fight because He changes your heart. That's why the grace is irresistible. And the P is perseverance of the saints. All right? So when someone says they believe in perseverance of the saints... Part of the tulip, you have to find out what they mean by this, okay? Because this doctrine is interpreted in two ways. Number one, a true Christian will never fall away. They will live a life of holiness and obedience. They will always persevere in holiness. They will always live a holy life. Okay? That's how someone from the Lordship camp would interpret this. All right? And that, you know, and that makes you wonder, well, Sometimes I have a problem here. Sometimes I fall there. You know, I mean, we're, we're people and we have struggles. And we don't always live the way we're called to live. You know, I mean, if you want to get serious about this and really get down, live in perfect holiness, all right, you got to, the two commandments that the Lord defined are love God with all your whole soul, mind, and strength. Do you know anybody that does that? Secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two. That's it. I don't know anybody who does, I mean... We have problems with this, people, okay? Which shows we're not perfect. But they'll define holiness as a lesser standard than loving God and loving your neighbor. Okay, if you do certain things, they'll say, well, then you can't be a Christian. And it depends on what circle. It could be playing cards, it could be dancing, it could be drinking, it could be smoking, it could be whatever. If you do those things, then you're out. Okay? You're not part of the group. The second view, which I hold, the other interpretation, basically that no one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Yeshua will ever be lost. When I use the term perseverance of the saints, I'm speaking about what most people call eternal security. In other words, if God saves you, you're saved. You're secure. You are secure forever. You will persevere. You will be there because God has called you. Spurgeon used to say, it's not so much the perseverance of the saints that is prominent as it is the preservation of the saints by God. God keeps us. That's the whole thing. And by God keeping us doesn't mean we always walk in holiness as we should. Now listen, I, I'm not making any excuse for sin because sin will be judged. God deals with sin here and now. And you'll make your life very miserable if you get involved in sin. But when we do sin, God doesn't say, that's it, you're out. Or they would say they never really were Christian because if you are a Christian, you can't do those things. Really? Can Christians do some horrible things? I know a man that the Bible calls a man after God's own heart who murdered somebody to cover up his adultery. That sounds pretty heinous, doesn't it? What we need to understand, people, is that salvation is based upon the act of one person. And that is Yeshua. And we need to understand that. The security of our salvation is not based on our continuance, our perseverance. Just as we're all condemned in Adam's sin, 
We're all made righteous by Christ's act. One of my favorite verses, Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. We understand that. It's because of Adam that we became sinners. So it's so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ. Christ's obedience to the Father, He was the righteous one. He was the last Adam who fulfilled all that God called him to do and it was by his obedience that the many will be made righteous. That is such a comforting verse. Okay? I'm secure. I'm good because of Christ's obedience. It's not based on my obedience. As a believer, I'm righteous. I will always be righteous because I'm in Christ and Christ never changes. So neither will I. Your salvation of mine depends only and entirely and exclusively on the obedience of Christ. That's where we're at, believers. It's about Him. It's about His work. So it says, but they went out that it might become plain that they were all not of us. So the last clause in this sentence is actually a subordinate purpose clause. It's introduced by Hina with the subjective Translated literally, it would read like this, but their going was in order that they might be revealed they're not of us. The reason they left, they weren't in fellowship with us. And they couldn't be here because of this heretical view that they hold, so they went out. And he wants them to know they're not part of this group. We don't endorse them. What they're teaching is wrong. They are of the spirit of Antichrist. They're not in fellowship with the apostolic circle. They're not in fellowship with the Jerusalem church. And the fact that they left, prove that. So in these first two verses of this section, Lazarus speaks of the coming of Antichrist, which would give them, let them know, would indicate to them, it's the last hour, and he identifies them as the secessionists. They seceded from the apostolic circle in Jerusalem. Not from the churches. They went out from the Jerusalem church. They were not in fellowship with that circle because they were walking in darkness of false doctrine. And we already saw that back in chapter 1. If you walk in darkness, you're not in the light. You don't have fellowship. This is all about fellowship. And he's saying, listen, believers, these people who left us, they don't have fellowship with us, and you can't have fellowship with them because they're antichrist. They're attacking the deity. They're attacking the humanity of Christ. And Lazarus is telling his readers that just because they came from Jerusalem, They were not of the apostolic circle. Don't listen to, don't believe what they're selling. I think it's important for us today because we have celebrity status as we talked about earlier in the church today. And If someone says something, boy, that's good. We'll hang on to that. It's okay. It can't be that way, people. We've got to know our Bibles. We've got to know doctrine. And that only happens as we spend time in the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray for the hearers here and those who will listen in the future that we would have the spirit, Lord, of Bereans. We'd not buy this. We'd not reject this without studying it for ourselves. Father, help us to understand how important doctrine is. Christology is. And may we make it our aim, our goal, Lord, to follow the truth of the Word of God. Not follow men, not follow celebrities, not follow programs, but follow you through the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the great privilege we have today to have the Word of God in its fullness. May we apply ourselves to it, Lord. Amen. All right, questions, (coughs) comments? Yes? Uh, 
church if they go out from that. Right. That would include reformers. Huh? That would include reformers. Well, yeah, of course, yeah. See, that's the thing. You know, it's true by whose definition of true, orthodox by whose definition, you know, because that's what the reformers were accused of. They left mother church because Rome was considered mother church then, you know, and if they were deviating from that, man, they were messed up. But how messed up was the church at that time you know, selling indulgences, doing so much stuff that was wrong, that finally God used these men of God to break away from that system and get back to the authority of the Word of God. And that was the whole thing. They, the Reformation, they wanted to, let's, we don't care what anybody, we don't care the church fathers, we don't care what any of this, what does the Word of God say? We're going back to the pure Word and get our understanding from that. And that's what happened. But yeah, they were accused of being, they're still be accused of that, you know, today by so-called Roman Mother Church. And, but we see that same influence today with the Pope. You know, He's like, whatever he says goes. And that's, that's the view back in that day. But, but even stronger, because the Jerusalem Church was the right church. I mean, this is where God started everything. Okay, This is where it all started. So they had some powerful authority. And these guys are going out teaching false doctrine, and people are saying, hey, they came from Jerusalem. And John is warning his readers, don't listen to them. They're antichrist. We done? The um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I don't remember either. <laughs> the Pope is supposedly the direct line from God. He's the vicar of God. Yeah. So when when Pope the Third, whatever has different view than today's Pope, but when they differ, what's their explanation? <laughs> that's, a, change his mind? that's a good question, because they definitely do change, you know, and uh, yeah, they, they're supposed to be getting this right from God, but they, they, you know, they keep changing, and you know, and it's sad, because people don't, again, people don't study, they don't know, people, most people who are Roman Catholic don't have a clue what the Catholic Church believes or teaches, they're just part of that church. They never study the doctrines of the church. They don't understand what, what they're saying. You know, because basically the Roman Catholic position is Christ died on the cross to save you. He did most of the work. Most of the work. He didn't do it all, okay? You have to add to those things. And they pronounce anathema on anybody that says that Christ alone saves. That's anathema to the Catholic church. People don't know that because they don't, study their doctrine they just you know and you know how foolish when I first became a Christian my wife was Catholic so I'd go to the Catholic Church occasionally they spoke Latin and so I'm there you know I'm not even a Christian I'm sitting there thinking this has to be one of the dumbest things I've ever seen people sitting here for an hour nodding and shaking their head don't understand one word that's going on you know there's a lot of ritual you know smoke smoke and water and flanging and stuff and you know up and down and you, Catholics are in good shape, believe me. <laughs> there's a lot of movement in the churches. But, you know, Latin. And I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Well, now at least they speak English, so you could understand them if you wanted to. But, yeah, but, you know, they still have a great hold on people. Stan? Um, I was beginning with Gary. I forgot what it was. <laughs> Oh, you got you older folks. Uh, we need some younger people in this church. Yeah, you know that's why you know I I did follow John like you did for a long time, and I guess like you know credit him. That's why I wanted to go to church verse by verse. 
But later on he talks about, I don't remember what study, but the, this is what I forgot. I know there's the practice and the... What's the practice? Orthodoxy? The what? Yeah. <laughs> Gary, I got what you got. <laughs> the practice and I can't think of the word. Position, there you go. Okay. Yeah, there's a huge difference. And that's the thing that maybe is not understood there. MacArthur believes that righteousness is imparted. In other words, you're made righteous. Okay, under that teaching, I feel like uh, not, I'm missing something here. I'm struggling. You know, I, it seems like it's easier to do wrong sometimes than to do right. MacArthur says, you know, righteousness is like breathing. It just naturally happens. I'm like... What kind of, and, and see what I'm saying is this hurts Christians because they're hearing that and they're like, man, I'm struggling with this sin. I can't get any victories. I must not be a Christian. And if that's your view, then what do you do? You just walk away. Yeah, yeah. And then, then the thing is, if you understand that Christians struggle, you know, that, that righteousness is imputed. In other words, it's put to your account. God sees you as righteous. But in your practice, you still struggle. If you understand that, then there's motivation to let me keep praying, let me keep working because I'm a Christian and I want to live how I'm called to live. Not to be righteous or earn something, but out of gratitude. That's our motivation, people, for holiness. It's pure gratitude. Listen, God chose me. I'm in His family. I'll always be in His family. Let me look like I'm one of His family, okay, by the way that I live. And that's how we're to live. And I'm with MacArthur, and we ought to live righteously and soberly and holy before God. You know, we ought to do that, but we fail. And we fail. And it's good to know that God keeps encouraging us to keep getting up and keep on going. All right? Because I'll tell you, people, if you, know, if you just think righteousness is imparted, you know, it's like, okay, all of a sudden, when you got saved, God gave you righteousness, and now you're righteous. Then I'm like, we don't even need the Bible. Because all these instructions in here, over and over, telling Christians to live righteous, why do we need those if we're made righteous already? What he's saying is, be what you are. You are righteous in a positional sense. Be righteous. Live it out in a practical sense. Well, that's the thing, you know, God brings us to a point where we see we need Him. We need Him. And, you know, we always stay in that position, okay? If you're going to live a righteous, holy life, you need Him. You know, and that's what this book's all about. It's about fellowship. Being in fellowship with God involves loving your brother, not walking in darkness, staying away from false teaching. We want to stay in fellowship. These things keep us in fellowship. That's what John's talking about. But, you know, people miss this and say, well, John's just talking about how to get saved. Well, why do you write the gospel? He says in the gospel why he wrote it. To get people saved. He says in this book, this is why he wrote it. To keep us in fellowship. Alright, we done? Come on down here. Let's uh, do some singing. Oh, wait a minute. I might have some questions. Sorry. Get that, you go ahead and get that set up. <laughs> oh, Bob. Uh, Bob Cruikshank says, uh, all this time reading all these ancient texts when all I really had to do was study physics. <laughs> or watch Star Trek and learn about photons. Man, I was way off. 
You know, I mean, we laugh about it, but it's seriously, I mean, it's sad. You know, I mean, coming up with some of this, like I said, all that stuff that Zane said was simply to say, soon doesn't mean soon. Then what does it mean? And why did he say it? But see, yeah, and here's the thing with that whole concept. If, okay, soon doesn't mean soon. Okay, but does this generation mean this generation? Or does it mean some other generation? Does some of you standing here not tasting death mean that they won't, you know, it's like he went to every extreme to express to you it's happening to you people. Well, <laughs> like I said, it made my head hurt just reading it, because I'm reading it and I'm thinking. And I've studied Einstein and his theory of relativity. And like I said, it's theory. Okay? You know what they mean by that. We can't prove this. We're making stuff up and you buy it. Okay? You, know, you watch the Big Bang Theory and you watch that. Okay? You know, Shelton was a physical, uh, uh, phys yeah, theoretical physicist. Okay? In other words... I'm making all this stuff up. You can't prove any of it, but that's my job, okay? And people buy into that. I'm like, okay, I'm done. Sing.